comes from Matthew chapter 17 and we're reading from verse 14 to 27. So you can read along on the screen or in your pew Bibles. When they came to the, to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on, me, on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two Dramacar tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you will find a four dramaka coin. Take it and give it to them for my attacks and yours. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, we, um, we do have an outline that will help you follow along and also do keep your Bibles open. We'll actually read through those, uh, all those verses that were read and we'll hopefully understand it by, with God's help. So do keep your Bibles open. For those who do need it, there is a full transcript if you like that. It's a strange story. We'll be looking at it today. Two strange stories, uh, I think. And so let's ask God for his help. We will need it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us, you reveal your ways, your son, and how we must respond, so help us to take it to heart. We pray that you'll open our minds and hearts and ears to receive it, understand it, and believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, every day we live, we live in a world where we are bombarded constantly with all sorts of information from our studies from our textbooks to going to work and the stuff we have to read, the stuff we find online, newspapers, radio, TV, and then we hear from friends and family. We're constantly bombarded with all sorts of information. And so how do you make sense of it all? How do you decide what's important? What are the important lessons for life, things that I should hold on to? You see, ever since we were all born, we were filled with information. We were taught given life lessons, some very important lessons we should hold on to. Some doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we disregard it. Now, some of you may have heard me share this story with you before, but I received a life lesson as a young boy. 
Now, when I was a young boy, there was this time I remember when my youngest brother was born. My youngest brother, at this time I was only six years old. My youngest brother, he was taken home from the hospital like a normal baby. And I remember being a bit surprised. Something just didn't make sense to me. Some of you may have heard of this story before. I remember my mum's tummy being big before she went to the hospital. But she, when she got home with my little brother, my, my youngest, uh, her, her tummy was flat. And I was a bit surprised. It, it makes sense. The baby came out of the belly. But how did it come out? How did it come out of my mother? And so as a boy, six-year-old boy, I, I was confused. I asked my mum, how did this brother of ours come out? Now, this was her opportunity to give me a little life lesson. And do you know how she answered me? She said, the armpit. That's how your brother came out of the armpit. I was six-year-old. I thought, yeah, all right, well, show me the hole. She obviously didn't. But that was the life lesson I got as a young boy. Now, I'm now a lot older, no longer six. I've seen the birth of our three kids. And let me tell you, if you do not know, it does not come out of the armpit. But that was the life lesson. And throughout our lives, we get all these little snippets of lessons for life. Now, this life lesson I received as a young boy, though I was taught the wrong thing. My life didn't really depend on it. It wasn't really detrimental to my upbringing as a little boy. I still lived a normal Chinese boy's life, doing maths and stuff like that. I was quite normal. It wasn't detrimental. But you see, there are some lessons in life, some lessons in life that are of profound importance that you cannot get wrong. You know, getting where babies come from, getting that wrong, it doesn't really matter too much. My life doesn't really depend on it. I found out eventually. But there are some important life lessons that you just cannot get wrong because they are a matter of righteousness and wickedness. They are a matter of life and death. They are a matter of heaven and hell. And that's the lesson we'll be looking at today in this passage. We come to... Two very strange stories. I find them very strange. But they both teach very important life lessons. Two lessons. One on faith and one on atonement. One on faith and one on atonement. So this first story teaches about faith. So let's look at it. What's the situation? Well, the problem was straightforward enough. A man comes to Jesus, pleads for mercy, for healing, because the disciples could not heal his son. And so verse 14 we read, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus, knelt before him, Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. Now the word seizures here, it's in fact where we get the word lunatic or lunacy from. So he's suffering, he's, he's going a bit crazy, we don't know what. It's a serious problem. And what we find later on, it wasn't just physical. Well, anyway, we, we read the symptoms. He often falls into the fire and into the water. That is, this boy was suicidal, wants to kill himself. And then we read on verse 16, I brought him to your disciples. This is the, the father who's pleading, who's sad, who's the, the distressed, distraught. I brought him to your disciples and, but they could not heal him. And so, in a sense, this story was straightforward enough. He comes again to Jesus, a sick boy, a pleading father. 
So what do you expect Jesus to do? Well, heal him, just like every other time. Heal him, you've done it before. You've done these things before, just do it. But this time, Jesus takes this opportunity to give a lesson on faith. To give a little lesson on faith. And so what he does now is he rebukes the people. Now, so far in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus tell off the leaders, the Pharisees, he's been hard at them, he's told them off many times. But this time, do you notice the difference? He tells them more off. You, all of you, this whole generation, he rebukes them all. Look at verse 17. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, you're all perverse, all of you. And then he goes on, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Now, you can almost sense from what Jesus is saying here, he was exasperated by their lack of faith. They did not believe after all that Jesus has done, all the miracles they've witnessed, all that they've seen. The Son of God was in their midst, the very Son of God from heaven, the one who was just transfigured up on the mountain. He was in their midst, but they remained without faith. Now, often when we think about someone who does not have faith, without faith in God, that that's you know, a, a bit unfortunate. Maybe they don't have enough evidence or maybe they sim- they're simply just not religious enough. But you see, that's not how God sees it here. Without faith in God, being faithless towards God, that, that's not how God sees it. You see, according to Jesus, unbelief in God is not a matter of indifference. It's not like I believe, you believe, whatever, whatever you believe doesn't matter. It just, who cares? You see, it's not a matter of indifference. According to Jesus, faithlessness, unbelief in God is in fact perverted. It's a moral failure in God's eyes to not believe in him. It's in the moral category, not the preference category. And so to not believe in God, it's strange, isn't it? Faith being a moral thing, well, Jesus is saying it's perverted, it is crooked, it is evil, it is from willful neglect of God. But it's strange for us, isn't it, to think about unbelief in this way. Why is it a moral thing? You see, if my kids, for example... Don't believe that babies do not come from the armpit. If they don't believe that, you wouldn't call that evil, would you? It wouldn't really matter. So why is unbelief evil? Well, it will be a bit like this. If my kids don't believe in me as their loving father, they they don't depend on me as their loving father, they've seen all that I've done in caring for them, in providing for them, in supporting them, in making huge sacrifices for them day in, day out. They've seen all that. We've taken them to school. We do all these things for them. They see all that. But then for my five-year-old son to turn around and to say to me, I can't depend on you. I don't see anything that you've done which shows your love and your care for me. If my five-year-old son said that to me, you see, it's not just a matter of indifference. It becomes a moral thing. It's a bit perverted, don't you see? But then how much more so with God? Unbelief, you see, is moral failure. It's not a matter of indifference. It doesn't matter whether you believe or not. No. Jesus says this is moral failure. And so what happens next in this story? Well, Jesus now demonstrates to them once again, effortlessly, verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon. The seizures were caused by a demon possession and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. 
And so as easy as that, the boy was healed. Now, if you, of course, you can imagine the disciples at this point, they were, they were perhaps a bit perplexed. Why couldn't we do this? Early on in Matthew, God, Jesus gave them powers. You can go out, do the healings, cast out demons, you can do all these things with my power. They've done it before, and so now they're a bit perplexed. Verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus in private, and they asked, well, why couldn't we drive it out? So what was the problem of the disciples? Well, you see, this is still part of our life lesson on faith. The problem of the disciples was that they were the same as that generation Jesus just told off. They should have been different. They've seen more, but they were just the same. And so verse 20, Jesus says, because you have so little faith. Now, how little? Well, Jesus tells them, I tell you the truth. If you have the faith of of as small as a mustard seed, You can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so Jesus is saying, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So how much faith did the disciples have? How much faith did they need? Well, whatever faith they had, it was less than a mustard seed. Now, if you know anything about mustard seeds, they're meant to be small. All seeds are small, right? And so what I thought uh, I'd do today is to show you what a mustard seed looks like. It's actually just a small seed. I've never seen one before, and so this afternoon I asked everyone, go to Woolies, grab me a bag of mustard seed, cost me a dollar thirty. This is how small it is. It's very small. Look, can you see it from back there? You can't, right? That's because it's small. But that's all you need. Jesus says, this is all you need. Faith as small as a mustard seed and that will move mountains. And so what was the problem of the disciples? Well, you see, the problem with the disciples was not the amount of faith, nor the size of their faith. It's not like the greater your faith, the more you can do. The greater your, 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 your faith, the more bigger mountains you can move. So it's not, a, it's not like, you know, if I have small faith, then I could maybe pray for nice weather. Maybe I can pray for parking if I have small faith but then if my faith increases maybe then I could pray for a good mark in my tests and if my faith increases and grows maybe then I could pray for things like a good result in my uni degree and if my faith gets even bigger now I can start praying for a wife and a husband one or the other not both (laughs) and if my faith gets bigger again then I can start praying for children grandchildren health and healing Now, you see, Jesus was not on on about that. That was not what Jesus was on about. You see, Jesus says, even the faith, as small as a mustard seed. Do you remember the mustard seed? I've got it in my pocket. Can you see that? You can't see, right? I'm holding something. Almost dropped it. But anyway, as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So what was the problem with the disciples? You see, the problem was not the amount of faith, nor the size of their faith, The problem was the object of their faith, where their faith was directed. They've misplaced what their faith was meant to be in. You see, the word faith simply means to depend on or to rely on, to trust in, to lean upon fully. And so what's important in faith is not how big it is, but who it's in or what it's in. 
What is my dependence in? Who is my dependence upon? And so this evening, in one sense, you all exercise faith, whether you know it or not. You exercise faith. At the moment, you all trust and depend on the pew you're sitting on to hold your weight. You trust that. You trust the pew to carry your weight as heavy as you are. You trust that it will keep you from falling to the ground. You see, it's not your faith in your faith that keeps you up. Try removing the pew and see if your faith keeps you up. It doesn't. It's your faith in the pew that keeps you up. You see, it's the object of the faith that's important. You understand that? It's not faith in faith. It's faith in the object. And here Jesus says, faith as small as a mustard seed in God. God is big and powerful, but your faith might be small and tiny. But God is big and powerful. If your faith is in God, who is big and powerful, you can move mountains. Now, what does that mean, moving mountains? Well, it's another way of saying the impossible can become possible. You can't move mountains, but you can with this little faith. So what does it mean? Impossible becoming possible. And so if these disciples only merely trusted that God can heal the boy, it would have happened. And obviously they did not do that. Now, a bit more about this moving mountain bit. What does that mean? What is that about? That if we just have faith and exercise faith, then we can do anything we want, want anything we want? Now, this bit of this text is often misunderstood. Now, this verse is not saying that if we have faith, then God will do anything we want. We just pray, muster up faith, and God will be like a genie at our disposal and do what we want. That is not the, the business of moving mountains. But sadly, that's how Christians even often understand this, that if I just somehow muster up this faith within me, that I can get what I want, that I can get God to do what I want, I can get that husband or wife or success or prosperity or health or wealth and that Ferrari, that's the moving mountains idea. But that's not what Jesus is on about. And so what is this moving mountains? What is impossible that becomes possible? Well, in this context, what do you think he might refer to? It's not about, it's never about what we want. It's always about what God wants. It's always about him and his kingdom. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been going around proclaiming that kingdom of God is near. Something that is impossible is becoming possible. And what is that? When the kingdom of God comes, what is impossible is that wretched sinners... Wretched fallen sinners who deserve punishment and judgment and condemnation and the full fury of God's wrath, that they, the guilty, might be declared innocent. That's impossible. How do you declare the guilty innocent? That is the moving mountain idea, that they, the stranger, might be brought into the kingdom of God, that they, the enemy, might become sons of God. You see, that's the impossible becoming possible. How can a wretched sinner, a fallen, dirty, filthy sinner, enter into the presence of God? That is impossible. But now it's becoming possible with the work of Jesus. The kingdom of God was coming. And so that's why straight after this story, Jesus again reminds them of what will take place. It's all linked up here. What will take place? What must take place? Look at verse 22 now. He goes on to say when they 
When they came to get in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. They obviously did not understand yet at this point. But you see the life lesson here in this first story. Do you have faith? Not faith in faith, not how big your faith is, but faith in God. And if your faith is even as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. A sinner can be saved. An enemy can become the son of God. So that's the faith lesson. Now let's move on. This next story, also a little bit strange. In fact, very strange. Only recorded here in Matthew. But it's a story in which Jesus gives another life lesson. A lesson on atonement to explain what will that cross mean? What will his death achieve? And so what's the, what, what happens? So they count. He begins with the tax collector. They ask Peter, verse 24, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now what's different about this tax is not the civil tax that Rome collects, it's the Jewish tax that is collected for the upkeep of the temple. It's the Jewish tax, not the civil tax. It comes from our first reading in Exodus 30. It was a tax of a half a shekel, two drachmas, collected once a year when the census was taken from every male Jew above 20. Priests and rabbis, they were exempt from paying this temple tax. And so this question was posed to Peter, verse 24, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Peter, he quickly responds, verse 25, yes, he does. But you see, Peter, like Peter, a bit rash, answering too quickly. And so when he went into the house, Jesus already anticipated what he would ask. And so Jesus asked him first, verse 25. Jesus already knew what was going to happen. And so asked him, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? And Peter's answer, well, from others. And so what did Jesus say? Was that right? Well, that's right. Then the sons are exempt. Now, now what was Jesus getting at here? Why do you think Jesus asked Peter such a question? What do you think Jesus wanted Peter to understand, to recognise, to appreciate? Well, kings only collect taxes from others. Right? Makes sense. You, if you're, you're the king, you collect from the citizens for the palace, for your sons, for your princesses. You don't collect from your own to give to others. You collect from others to give to your own. And so the sons are exempt. The sons of the kings are exempt. And so what do you think Jesus was trying to make clear here? Well, Jesus was trying to get Peter to see that Jesus, the one who, whom he confessed to be the Christ, that Jesus is the son of the king of heaven. Jesus is the king, the son of the king of this temple that they were collecting tax for. And so Jesus was, in a sense, saying to Peter, I'm exempt from this tax. I'm the son of the king of heaven. This is all for me, in a sense. I'm exempt from this tax. I'm the son of God. And so he did not need to pay this tax. But then we read on on what happens. Well, Jesus nonetheless happily complies. Through this extraordinary man, he pays this tax anyway, pays by not paying in a sense. He gets his coin out as his fish. And so we read, verse 27, 
but so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, this story, that's why I thought it was strange. Sounds a bit straightforward, a miracle, but it's been taught in different ways. We actually looked at this this weekend. We'll weigh the youth leaders on this retreat. And so we asked the youth leaders, what do you think? Some said, well, maybe this means Christians. We don't need to pay tax. We're the sons of, sons of God, sons and daughters of God. We don't need to pay tax at all. We're exempt. Some said, maybe we should be collecting from others and giving to the church, not from the church for others. Now, obviously, these leaders, they're, they're the ones who teach our youth. We trust them, right? Now, of course, they said all that in, with tongue-in-cheek. But often it's been taught we should be willing to comply with authorities, with, con- with the conventions of society as to not cause offence, that that was the intention of Jesus from this miracle. But if that's thought, I think that misses the mark. I really don't think this is about just complying with convention. You see, I think what happens is that this story happens right after Jesus calls for a faith that moves mountain. Okay, that's the context. Jesus calls for a faith that moves mountain and then he predicts of his imminent suffering and death. And this story happens. Is it connected to that? Well, what I think is happening is that Jesus is in fact teaching them of what will take place at his death, the meaning of his death. And so, how do we get to this? Rather than seeing the money as merely being paid to keep the temple going, it's worth understanding why this tax was given in the first place. What was the reason of this tax? And so focusing not on where it went, but what it did, what this tax money achieved. Now, do you remember that from our first reading in Exodus 30? In Exodus 30, we saw this. In verse 12, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his money at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when, they are, when, that, when you number them. And then verse 16, receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your lives. Now, do you see why the money was taken in the first place? It was used for the temple. It was used for that. But why was it taken? Well, it was taken because it was a ransom for their lives. You give it so that you live. You give it so that the plague won't come upon you. It's atonement money. You give it so that you stay living. And so they paid the money to be numbered among God's people. That's the significance of this tax money. Pay it and live. Don't pay it and you die. Now let me ask you how this connects. Do you see now the connection with why Jesus said he was exempt? Remember that idea? He was exempt. He's the son of God. He's exempt from paying this tax. Thus this informed that. See, this helps us see now that Jesus was not only exempt because he was the son of God, the son of the king, but he was exempt because he had no ransom to pay. He did not have to pay for his own life. He had no sin. He was perfect, in perfect relationship with God, his father. He had no 
atonement money that he had to pay for because he had no sin to atone for. Jesus was exempt, not just as the Son of God, but from this ransom money. He did not have to pay that price. But then in the end, what happened in this story? Did Jesus pay? Well, he did pay anyway, didn't he? He paid the tax, even though he was exempt. And why? Why did he pay if he was exempt from atoning for himself, from ransoming for himself? Well, you see, his payment was not atonement for himself, but it was atonement for the world. Jesus, he paid the half-shackle ransom as a ransom, not for his own life, but what he's hinting here was what will take place at the cross. The cross will be a ransom for others. Do you notice whom Jesus paid the tax for? He pays for himself, but also for Peter. You see, he's hinting of the significance of the cross, that it will be a ransom for others. It will pay so that others will live. And so what we're seeing here is it's pointed to one day. Here he paid the ransom with a coin. One day he'll pay the ransom with his life. You see, this is new information so far in Matthew. Because later on, what do we see? In Matthew 20, finally Jesus makes it clear. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this fish miracle, it's not about really paying tax, but it's Jesus giving a a life lesson on atonement, that he will be that atonement for others in the paying of this tax but then with his life eventually. And so do you see how this connects with what goes before it? Jesus calls for faith. He predicts his death and now he hints that his death will be a ransom. It is only a hint at this point, but we see it in Matthew 20. So that's our passage today. Two really strange stories, but two big life lessons. A lesson on faith and a lesson on atonement. And so today as we Christians, as we who gather here, reflect on this passage, really these are the same lessons for us. They are still true for us. Lessons that are not insignificant or indifferent like what I was taught as a boy, but lessons that we cannot get wrong. You see, you cannot get faith wrong. Terrible consequences. You cannot get atonement wrong. Terrible consequences. Because what happens when you get faith wrong? What happens when you get atonement wrong? That Jesus pays for us. What happens when you get that wrong? Well, what happens when you get faith wrong? Well, when you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that God made you, loves you, sustains you and saved you through his son, if you don't believe in that, it doesn't mean that you don't believe in anything. It really means that you believe in anything. You believe in anything if you don't believe in God. And what help Will it be to me if my faith in God has been misplaced? If instead of trusting in God, relying on him, depending on him, my faith was in humanity. You often hear people say when someone does something really nice, you, you watch the news, 30 minutes of terrible tragedies all around the world. The last 30 seconds, someone saves a cat from a tree and then the reporter says, doesn't this restore your faith in humanity? after all that you've seen, really? So if you've placed your trust in humanity or if I place my faith in the goodwill of people, that people are generally good, or if I place my faith in world leaders 
you know, all the presidential uh, election stuff that's going on, they're really placing their hope that they will change not just their country but the world or if I place my faith in myself. Do you know how dangerous that will be if my faith is misplaced? Now, when life goes crazy, life does go crazy, some of us, all, many of us here are still young, we think we're still invincible. But things happen. We get sick. That's a reminder we're not invincible. When we get disappointed, disillusioned, distressed, depressed, lonely, broken relationships, if we've experienced that, when life just gets tough, 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 and we're in the pits, how much good will my faith in humanity be of help at that point? How much good will my faith in world leaders be at that point when I'm feeling so down? How much good will my faith, even in myself, be of use at that point? But you see, if my faith at that point remains the size of this mustard seed, mustard seed, but in God, it's not the size that matters, it is in God who is big and powerful. At that point, at my deepest, darkest moments, if my faith is still in God, then he grants peace, a peace beyond all understanding, a comfort that we cannot understand. And then one day when our life comes to an end and we're all standing before God, you stand before God, I'll stand before God, you don't stand before me, we stand before God, the God of the universe, and all our deeds are on display, all our thoughts are shown. We're standing there. How much good will my faith in humanity be at that point? How much good will my faith in the goodness of people be at that point? How much good will my faith in myself be at that point? It won't help me. It won't save me. It won't cover all I've done. But if my faith, if I say to God, look God, throughout my life I had my ups and downs, but my faith was always at least this small, the size of the mustard seed. I always trusted you. My faith was small, but you were always, you are always big and powerful. I've always trusted you, trusted that you would save me, trusted that you would love me, trusted that you have sent your son for me. What will God say? Well, that's enough. That's enough because it's in me. That's enough. You get life. You get heaven because your faith was in me. You see, you get faith wrong. Terrible, terrible consequences. Get it right, you get life. And what happens when you get atonement wrong? being made right with God. Well, this is particularly important for those of us who have been a Christian for a long time, for a while. You know, if I experience or have a terrible day, I forgot to do my devotion today. I forgot even to pray. My study was unproductive. My work was a nightmare. My boss was off at me. My wife was nagging all day. My kids fighting. And it was a terrible day. By the end of the day, I felt flat. I'm feeling that God is fine. This I'm feeling terrible. What should I do? If I understand atonement rightly, what should I do? Try harder? Work harder? Pray harder? Muster up some faith? Well, no, I remember the lesson on atonement. My standing before God is not based on what I can do, what I try to do, but it's based solely on Jesus who paid the ransom that I might live based on Jesus alone, on his life given for me at the cross. 
And then the flip side, if my day was awesome, I did my devotion today, I got really excited about what I read, I spent two hours praying to God and I powered, it powered me through the day, I studied well, did excellent in my exams, work was easier, breeze, my boss was so proud of me, come home, my wife cooks an awesome meal, she's wonderful, kids are well behaved, they welcome me with open arms and at the end of the day I'm filled with joy, filled with life, feeling so close to God. It's awesome. But then what should I do if I think about atonement rightly? What should I be thinking? Well, God must be pleased with me today. God must be proud of me today. How hard I've worked, how good it is, how Christ-like I am? Well, no. If I remember the lesson on atonement rightly, my standing before God is never based on what I do or what I try to do, but based solely on Jesus who gave his life as a ransom that I might live. He hinted at that with the coin, but he gave that with his life. And so today, two life lessons that you cannot get wrong on faith, on atonement. Cannot get this wrong. And my prayer is that we will never get these two lessons wrong. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in stories like ones we looked at today, a bit obscure, a bit strange,